This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to Invested, the podcast where we're learning to invest like the best investors in the world, uh, to do the exact thing that all of the financial services industry says you can't do, um, which means your financial advisor is going to tell you you can't do this, um, that if it was this easy to invest well, everybody would be doing it, Mm -hmm. and every other excuse that everybody gives you to keep you right where you are in your life uh, unintentionally, with the best intentions, actually. And every Um, excuse that I completely believed until like three years ago. Exactly. You have convinced me. (laughs) I hate to admit it, but it's true. And it's fascinating. We have more and more financial advisors are coming to the the workshop that we do. Oh, really? Uh, If if only to learn about what their what their clients are telling them. Like their clients are now starting to go to them who've been listening to this podcast Hmm. and working on the materials and who have maybe gone to the workshop or they've taken your newsletter or something, you know? Yeah. And started to really build up their their understanding of investing and coming to the conclusion that they could actually get a lot of benefit from this. A lot of clients have gone back to their financial advisors and said, Hey, what's the value of these stocks that I own? Tell me oh, what they're that's worth. Interesting. Really? Yeah. And the, oh. and the financial advisors are a little bit out to sea because if you've gone to work for JP Morgan or if you've gone to work for Morgan Stanley and you're a financial advisor, you know that your training was about selling, not about figuring out the value of things. For that, you rely on their uh, analyst desk to tell you what to tell your clients to buy. Yeah. And you don't know. I mean, so when your client to be, comes to in be and says, fair hey, to them, like financial advisors, that's not really their job to announce the value of things that people have, that they've steered the clients into various products of. Well, yeah, it, I guess it's, I mean, certainly isn't their job the way their job is defined. But right. Come on. Doesn't the client kind of think that when the sales guy is recommending that you buy this thing, that they sort of know that it's a good deal for you? Yeah. And yet... Wouldn't you think so? Yeah, I do. And yet, also, it's not their job. And there's that that disconnect between the expectations of an ignorant client and the expectations of a semi-informed financial advisor who understands the parameters of their job. Like, it's just not set up to actually meet those kinds of questions. Like, what is the value of the stuff you've put me into? Isn't and, that and fascinating, a, though? Yeah, it's completely fascinating that there's this disconnect between the expectations of a client. In other words, if you were to go to a real estate agent and say, should I buy this house? I can tell you that the real estate agents are have a pretty good idea of what things are selling for. Absolutely. 
but they may not have much of an idea of what things are worth. Right. So that same problem can exist out there. And so we're not picking on financial advisors. Don't send us any nasty letters. It's all right. We know that there's a really important value to financial advisors. These people earn their money. Um, but Exactly. No, I was just thinking, by, I have friends who have done that job, financial advisor for very big banks. And uh, I mean, they had some training on sort of how you... Uh, research companies and and funds and and so that they can talk about it adequately, you know. But the the job really is sales, and nobody is confused about that on the banking side. But I think potential clients can be unsure about that role. Well, yeah, I mean, if and fortunately, most financial advisors, I mean, virtually all of them that are in the United States um, are required to be a fiduciary for the client and are not paid commissions. Yeah, and so they are doing their best because they're gonna True. they're gonna make more money if you make more money because True. they're taking a percentage of your assets under management, mm -hmm. and um, and they do. I think financial advisors do a very very good job in uh, in the complex world of wealth management. That's very complex. I, I mean, do we're too. talking trusts. We're talking yeah. you know, insurance. We're talking annuities. We're talking complex all estate sorts of planning. Absolutely. Yeah. Com complex investments uh, are, you know, you really have to, you re you just really have to um, know your stuff. But that doesn't mean that part of what you know is necessarily that the value of the stocks you're buying. And and in fairness, almost everything else that they're going to advise you to get involved in, if you have a lot of money, um, they don't have to know the value of it because it's. It's self-evident. In other words, the the bonds that you buy produce a certain return for a certain amount of time, and they have a certain level of risk. And the annuities have a certain level of risk and a certain level of return, and they're very stable. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, all of those kinds of things are relatively straightforward for an advisor. But what is not straightforward is the stock market. And so advisors have are, are clinging to the notion almost with a, a bit of desperation, that stock prices are the same as stock values because that totally gets them off the hook. If somebody says, what's the value of this you know, Boeing stock that I own? The advisor can point to the stock price and say, it's that. Well, or and they can say like, that's a concept that doesn't really have a lot of a applicability to our current situation and the stock price is that, you know, like I'm not like, it's not necessarily that they believe that the value is the price, but they can just say like, that's a bit more complicated than we're going to get into. And the price is right here. And that's what I can and, tell you. And they'll, they'll also say something very intelligent and correct. Um, if they've got the right companies, um, and that is, look, we're in it for the long haul, all right, Danielle, and um, and these are great companies. Boeing's a great company, and it's been around forever, and it's going to be around forever. And if if the price is a little off right now, that's all right. In the long run, it won't matter that much. Mm -hmm. And that's actually reasonable, right? Yeah. For a person that's going to have broad diversification, what you'd like to do is broad diversification means you have you know, dozens, if not hundreds of stocks in your portfolio, or you're broadly diversified across indexes, which takes the advisor off the hook completely. And they don't have, you, you can't even ask the question to that advisor because it's a nonsense question. You might ask, well, 
is the stock market going to drop? And should I be in here for another 40% drop? Or should I get out of the way of this? Because, you know, I'm 66 and I need to make sure that I don't have 10 years of a zero return because that's going to really hurt me. Right? Right. That That's the question. And, and I think that what we talked about last time was that we were going to deal with some of the things that point to that question, answering that question. Yeah. And that's really hard for an advisor to answer. I think most of them are going to just say, look, we, we can't know when to move in and out of the market. Nobody knows when to move in and out of the market. Not Phil Town, not Danielle Town, not Warren Buffett. Mm-hmm. No one knows that. And they're absolutely right. So we're not, we're not knocking financial advisors per se. What we're saying is that if it's the case, as Warren Buffett has believed and taught for 50 years, if it's the case that the stock market can vastly misprice assets, can, can give you stocks at a way too high a price to pay, and can present you stocks at way on sale prices that you could steal, um, then does it make sense to just assume that everything's fine all the time? And does and it make I think that for some of us, assume everything's fine all the time. What does that in mean? In other words, uh, well, okay, it means. <laughs> all right, it means that if all stocks are priced at their values, then everything is properly done. Everything's done. There's nothing you can do about it. It's a 50-50 bet whether those stocks go up or down all the time. So everything's okay all the time. You're in a situation where it's it's a coin flip at any moment in the stock market, whether that's going to go down or up. Okay. Okay. And what what... And what and the person that that's appropriate for are the, in fact the people that financial advisors are after to help, and those are people with wealth. Those are people who are not concerned about whether they're going to have any retirement. They're they're not concerned about working at Walmart at seventy five years old. Yeah. What they're concerned about is sustaining a lifetime of of comfortable living and generational wealth. Mm-hmm. Right, which is, I mean, that's. If you're in that ballpark, honestly, God bless you, and you don't you can you can change podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> but I told you last time, no, they cannot change podcasts because they have to understand what's going on. But well, but I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm, that people I'm afraid they'll understand just enough to be dangerous and upset and have nowhere to go with it, right? Why? Because they're not going to do the work that it takes to become competent at this. Oh my God, what a generalization. Okay. How horrible. Why? Why? Okay, my generalization is that people have a lot of money in general, which is what a generalization is, in general are not willing to do the work that it takes to take over responsibility for your your assets. Wow. Maybe we know different people who are wealthy, but the people who are wealthy I know tend to take it extremely seriously that they are the stewards of their family capital and to be the one who would break the chain and lose the money because of not understanding what's going on and what they're doing is just like the worst thing they can imagine. So, Well, I think that's a different person, honestly. And Well, it's not a different person. It's a different, it's a different approach to understanding what's going on. In other words, if understanding what's going on means as... Everyone agrees, Warren Buffett, you, me, we all agree. In the long run, the stock market's going to go up. And in the long run, um, 
you know, just putting your money in a in an index is going to be perfectly acceptable to a wealthy client. Then if they understand that, they'll leave it alone. I'm so confused. I mean, are you saying that you've you've got friends out there who are wealthy who are thinking about pulling their money out of the stock market? Of course. They're thinking about all of it all the time. They're managing their money actively. They have multiple advisors. They are debating who's right about which advice. They're choosing funds. They're uh, actively managing their own money. Yes. Wow. So they actually may have advisors who are saying, yeah, let's let's yank your money out of the market now. Probably. A lot of people, a lot of people are saying that. So I would not be surprised. Oh, man, I'd be so surprised. All right. You advisors who are busy telling your clients, okay, we, in fact, do know when to get out of the stock market and we're going to get out now. Um, You've got to shoot Danielle an email and let her know you're doing that. Yeah. With I'll make you a bet right now. Thanks to I like the 15 10 value fund managers who have all been saying that for <laughs> three years. So well, no, no, the fund managers are different. I'm talking about financial advisors who are actually going to go against the the uh, the paradigm, which is if your clients have the money, there's no reason to exit the market. They they should stay in for the long run. Okay, so we're and arguing way, about we'll nothing. Diversify. We're arguing about. Our impressions of how wealthy people handle their various fortunes, which, okay, okay, fine. They handle it in different ways. Let's agree on that. Um, All right. We agree on that. Stipulated. (laughs) I don't know what the point is. The point is you shouldn't stop listening to this podcast. I think that was the point. And then the secondary point. So just we only have so many we only have so much room for so many people to listen to the podcast. There are only so many downloads so available. There's only so many downloads and available. And we need you three people to stop <laughs> downloading. We have people standing in line <laughs> waiting to get the next download opportunity. <laughs> You know, there's some people out there right now who don't get the joke. They're like, wow, there's a limited number of downloads. I thought so. All right. So so here's the point. You promised to teach me what a yield curve is. And I <laughs> That's want, a big leap. Not, is it a big leap? I don't know. I don't, I, I, I can't tell what the, wh- well, where you were heading with it. It's a leap from where we just were. Which was, yeah, because, okay, we're just talking about people who don't need to know where the market's going. But let's talk now about people who do need to know where the market's going in order to increase the velocity of the rate of return, um, increase the velocity of their money, and increase their rate of return. And to do so... wait. So I think now I understand what you were talking about. Because I think maybe what you were saying is that people who don't need to dramatically grow their wealth aren't so worried about the ups and downs of the market... They can just I'm chill. pretty sure I said that. I said that. You probably did, and I probably missed it in the midst <laughs> I might of not our impressions of what ultra-wealthy people do with their money. And then the, and well, then the connection is, actually the connection, it. I believe, is that people who are not those three people who should stop listening to our podcast need to right. actually think maybe about moving in and out in order to maximize their gains from in order to maximize their gains and and there's a fundamental understanding about rates of return that that feed this uh this issue and make it pretty dramatically clear that we we have to pay attention if we want to get a high rate of return and that is that 
if the market goes down 50% and you stay in it and you have, let's say, $100,000 and now uh, marked, marked to market, which means not that the value of your portfolio is 50000 but that when you look at the stock market and compare it to your portfolio, if you were to sell out that portfolio that day, you'd make 50000 bucks. You'd have that. Mm -hmm. So you've just gone down by 50% to 50000 And how much do you have to go up now? to break even, to have a zero rate of return. So you're just a negative 50%. And the answer is it has to go up $50,000. It has to go up like 100%. 100%. Yes. So that's a huge move in the market. That could take a decade. Yeah. Easily. Yeah. A decade. And so that's the problem. If you can't handle a decade of zero rates of return, then you may want to really consider looking at some signals that the market is about to turn oh, the other direction. No more down. signals, please. Is the yield yes. curve a signal? Yes. Okay. It's, a, it's a giant red flag waving from the top of the mast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, we're, that we're on our way into a recession. Now, this isn't necessarily the end of the stock market run. Um, but given the fact that we've had a 10-year stock market run, which is world record, we've never had one go that long without a major downturn, um, we're way overdue for a major downturn. And I think um, if we start into a recession, a couple of things will feed this downturn dramatically. And the first one is that today we have a huge percentage of the stock market, something like 30% of the stock market is actually not invested in individual stocks. It's invested in indexes. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this before mm -hmm. and the worry that many investors have about the effects of so many people owning indexes versus the underlying companies, the underlying stocks. Right. The, the difference between owning an index and a stock is that you're not a discovering price. There's no price discovery process. You're just owning it. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter what the actual value is or the price or anything else. You're just buying the index. And and as a result, when the, in, when, when the index is going up, it feeds itself. Oh, it's going up, so we buy more. But when the index is going down, it eats itself and you go down fast. So that's because when you buy an index, I always have to like go through this process in my mind. You don't, there's no like imaginary thing that you buy. It's a fund that is formed that tracks the, uh, the companies that are in the index. So the index is something that people put together. It's like a list of companies essentially. And then these index tracking funds um, are formed with the companies in that index. Correct? Right. Right. But it doesn't just track them. It actually buys them. Right. Right. Sorry. Yes. Good point. Right. In order to right. track them. And so when the index is going up and people are putting money into it, then the index itself is forcing the market yes. up. It's a, it's a, so by buying, it's a self-fulfilling So prophecy. by buying the S&P index fund that you can go to your brokerage and purchase a share of, that fund right. then automatically buys more of those companies that are in that fund. So your purchase of the index fund then creates purchases of the underlying companies, which makes those prices then go higher. 
Exactly. And then the opposite occurs when you sell. So as people get nervous about the uh, index turning down, then this process repeats itself in a negative way. And the problem is that the, the rule that the stock market goes up like going up a staircase, walking upstairs, and that when it comes down, it's like stepping into the elevator what? shaft. I've never heard that before. It goes right. up like a staircase and down like stepping into the elevator shaft. That's crazy. Exactly. Or like stepping out the yeah. window. And that happens because fear is a much stronger driver to uh, people's money than greed. So people will put their money in gradually, but they take it out all mm, at once. Mm. And, and when that happens, um, the index has to sell all of those stocks that comprise the index, regardless of what they're worth, regardless of their price. So bam, down they come, which exacerbates the fear. And that fear then spirals on itself relatively quickly. And it exacerbates and the price drop. And exacerbates the price drop and exacerbates so the fear. So that's what everybody's worried about, that it's going to create a drop that's what everybody's like worried we've about. never There's seen nobody... before because we've never had all of the in- these index funds before. Exactly. Exactly. We have, we have nobody out there discovering price uh, among people who are index investors. They're just going with the market. But they've forgotten that when there's that many of them, they are the market. Yeah. And so their market their market enthusiasm makes the market go up. Their market fear makes the market plummet, which can really spiral some fear. And I think a number of really sizable investors who've been around a long time, I've seen this as a really major problem. And by the way, it doesn't exist just in the uh, big indexes like SPY or, or uh, IWM for the Russell. It it, ind- it it's even worse in the bond in- bond market it where you have these large bond funds mm. that are relatively illiquid these bonds that they own mm. don't have a lot of buyers and sellers there's not a lot of price discovery going on every day like there is in the stock market mm. but and so when they start to get in they drive the bond prices up and they drive, and drive the yields down and when they start to get out the opposite happens and it ha- can happen extremely fast because those bond funds may not be able to find anybody to sell the bond yeah, to. I didn't know that there were bond funds. Right. And so as the bond funds get in trouble, what happens is interest rates rise mm. um, to a point where if you own a $100,000 bond fund and interest rates suddenly double, your, your $100,000 just became roughly fifty grand. Mm. I mean, almost overnight, and it, it's very scary. So, if you're in a bond fund, watch out for for the, for what's happening right now. It's done very well, and it'll probably continue to do well. But just so you understand what you own, there, you don't get the advantage of a bond, which is to sit in it until it expires, and you get your money back. Right? Bond funds aren't like that. You are you're going with the bond fund, whatever that price is. So this this these these things have a, a potential for a big problem in the market. So that's the first issue is that index funds are <clears throat> are a huge piece of the, the market pricing right now and may fail on pr- price discovery and, and drive the market down. And second thing is that 75 million people are entering retirement now and they are nervous about this market. They are principally responsible for driving the market up since 1980 when uh, everything from 401k plans to IRAs 
were developed by the federal government to provide a retirement for people who no longer got a defined benefit plan from their corporation. Mm -hmm. And now that money has gone into the market. Now it's likely to come out. And it's obviously likely to come out over retirement of the, of the baby boomers. But if they perceive that it's really a scary market, we may see them yank the money. Particularly if interest rates start to go up at the you same mean, time. like rather than them taking some amount, some one leave, you know, twenty percent out now when they retire and leaving the rest in and just sort of hoping that it continues to go up, they might take a hundred percent of their money out of the market now, and because they're worried about the future in the market. Because they're worried about their future, and their financial advisors may advise them sure. to do something yeah. like that, and say, "Look, we know you're worried." Here's something you can do. You can move this to an annuity. And now annuity prices, let's say, as interest rates are rising, you get more and more bang for your buck from an mm -hmm. annuity. It's much um, more reliable. <clears throat> some annuities may even generate a return that's, you know, reasonably what the market might do if the market was good. And so people go, oh, the heck with the market. If I can get 9% from an annuity, yeah. I'm taking it. And bam. They're taking the money out, and they could be doing that in very large quantities. So those two things hang over us right now, which might make sense out of really paying attention to some of the signals that are out there right now shouting this market okay, is shaking. Okay, but wait, let me ask you about this baby boomer thing. Um, and I don't know if you have, like, demographic data or, or exactly, if it's just sort of an impression. Um, because baby boomers have been retiring now for a few years. I mean, is there really a cliff that you think is coming where suddenly, boom, a bunch of people are going to retire all at the same time and it would create some kind of ripple effect? Or is it going to be more gradual as it has been in the last five-ish years? Well, I think it's gradual right up until the market crashes. <laughs> and then I think you're going to see the impact of people getting scared for their their future mm -hmm. retirement all at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it's everybody's an individual and has their own situation. So taking the money out over a period of time, gradual. But no one wants to be in the stock market when it crashes 50%. If you're retired and trying to live on that money... You just may have had your retirement, your comfortable retirement destroyed by a 50% drop in the market when the market doesn't recover mm -hmm. for 10 years. In other words, you may have to eat your seed corn, right? You may, you may have to eat up your future retirement benefits by, by taking the principle of your retirement in larger and larger chunks than you yeah. would have planned to do. And that can be very scary for people. <clears throat> um, by the way, on that note, there is a a uh, an annuity that people are talking about now. I'm just going to throw it out there. I'm not a financial advisor here, but well, I actually am. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have the license, but not the experience. But I'm no expert. <laughs> but I don't have the experience. So to be clear, <laughs> you are not Excuse recommending me. this particular thing you're about to talk about. No, I'm just uh, mentioning it as uh, a potential way to protect yourself from outliving your money. Um, which is a big concern. And that is um, a, what's called a longevity annuity. And you can check with your financial advisor about it. It's essentially an annuity that doesn't pay you until you're 85 years old. It doesn't even start hmm. to pay out a payment until you're 85. So it's really kind of a bet that you're going to live a lot yeah. longer than average. 
But if you do, it's going to provide you an, a, a, an additional amount of money to Social mm -hmm. Security. And that may be worth looking into. It may not cost a lot right now because, They're right? assuming that a lot of people are not going to actually make it to the 85, and that's how they finance it. Exactly. So they don't have to charge you a lot for the annuity because most of the people who buy one, it's right. never going to pay off right. for them. Right. Right? It's only for those rare people who are going to outlive their uh, their actuarial yeah, exactly. table, I guess. <laughs> And so it doesn't. It might not cost a lot of money to get one that will pay you, you know, a double your Social Security amount of money, right? Another couple thousand bucks a month uh, might not might not cost a lot right now because they can afford to 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 take in a a reasonably small amount of money and then pay off a big pile to the people who live mm. to who live longer, who live too, too long, long, yeah. From the insurance company's point of view. Well, maybe we should shift our yield curve discussion to the next one. No, okay, yield curve's me. easy. Okay, and, and no, and it's yield curve is simply the um, the the tip. Let's start with the basic yield. The basic way yields work. If I give you my money uh, and you borrow it for a mm -hmm. period of time, the longer you hold it, the more I'm likely to want in terms of an yeah. interest rate. Because I run into more risk that you'll yeah. never pay me back. Okay, so I want to get a higher rate of return. So typically in the government treasuries, which work that same way. Oh, also, because interest or, or inflation may change down or up. If it changes upward over the long period of time I'm lending you this money, then I'm going to wish I hadn't lent it to you for so mm -hmm. long. Because if I hadn't, I'd be able to lend it out now at this mm -hmm. much higher interest rate. Okay, so typically yields of of uh, for lenders are the interest rate is higher the longer they lend the money. Okay, yes, the interest rate is higher right when you lend for longer. Right. Okay, so the government treasuries work that same way. So the government is borrowing money from people. And if it borrows money for a long period of time, it's going to pay more interest rate than if you borrow the money for a short period of time, if they borrow the yes. money for a short period of time. And so the 10-year treasury is considered a long period of time, the 10-year treasury bill. It's you lending the government money for 10 years, mm -hmm. right? So that's the long interest rate. So that should be higher than any of the interest rates of a shorter period of mm -hmm. time than that one. So the 10-year treasury should be higher than the five-year treasury, which should be higher than the two-year treasury, which should be higher than the three-month treasury. It does. does it make sense? That's, that's the standard of yields. Now, an inverted yield curve happens when, for, for a, a major reason, that yield curve changes to where the long one is lower interest rate than the short one. Oh, that's weird. And that's why they call it an inverted yield curve. It went upside down. It flipped over the normal relationship between long-term interest rates and short-term interest rates is that longer are higher. Longer are a bigger number. So right now, if we have a long interest rate, which is the 10-year treasury, it's currently today at 2.434%. So if we didn't 
have a problem going on out there, <clears throat> then all the other interest rates below that should be less than that one. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out like the incentives going on here. So it would be a 10-year would become lower because suddenly they want more people to lend money for a longer period of time to the government. The actual opposite of that. Opposite of that. Yeah, yields in bonds Oh, right, because if it's a lower interest rate, then logical. that's less desirable. Yeah, I always get that wrong. So right. they want more... No, they want less people to lend money in a long-term way. Well, it's not so much what they want as what the market's yeah, willing know, I'm to do. Yeah, I'm saying it in a very... Or what the market's trying to do. <laughs> so the Treasury could want everybody to lend them money at one-tenth of a percent for the next 50 years. That's what they yeah. would want, yeah, yeah. right? Because they don't want to pay a high interest rate. It costs the American public a lot of money to pay interest rates. But what they want is irrelevant. It's what the market will do. And the market for U.S. Treasury bills is international. It's international. And so there's an interesting problem going on here. If the U.S. 10-year Treasury bill is 2.48%, um, and these other things should be lower than that, um, why would it change? Why wouldn't, why would anybody want to uh, get a higher rate of return for a three-month treasury bill than for a 10-year so treasury mean that the, bill. Okay, go ahead. And the answer... Okay, well, the answer is pretty simple. Um, if you think that interest rates are going down over the long term, then getting a 2.48% return would be a really cool thing to get. If you think mm -hmm. that, you know, a few years from now, there'll be 2.2% or 2.1% mm -hmm. or 2%. In other words, if you think that the world is awash in money looking for a place to put it and that there's no place to put it so that people are going to lend it to the federal government um, and there's more money than the federal government needs, then interest rates are going down. Mm -hmm. All right? Interest rates are going down. And the, the weird thing about this is that it happens... Like that, when um, typically when the federal government has really juiced up the economy, they've pumped money into the economy in the form of low interest rates. Um, they've gotten more people working. They're cranking. The economy is cranking. It's getting overheated. Um, everything's going really, really great. <clears throat> and the Federal Reserve gets nervous and says, oh, my gosh, we're, we're overheating and inflation is going to wreck our economy. So let's raise interest rates. Okay. Okay. So they try to raise interest rates. They, they start to try to raise up the interest rates. And in this case, it's exactly what they were doing. They're trying to raise the interest rates. And more money comes flowing in than they ever thought possible. Okay. And what happens is the it's just a it's just an auction. The Federal Reserve can say whatever it wants to say in terms of what it's going to lend things at, but the auction is where it's determined. And if a ton of money comes flying in and says, "Hey, we'll take that interest rate, 
then they're going to lower the interest rate. So that's what I was about to say is it means the demand is high. So they're lowering the rate because there's such demand. Um, And so they don't have to pay as high interest. But what you said before that was yeah, exactly. Demand is high because there's this opinion out there that um, interest rates will be higher in the future, lower in the future. Lower in the future. Right now, if interest rates are going to be lower in the future, I and that's what I want is a long term rate. The money might be chasing the 10 year treasury and the three month treasury doesn't have anybody wanting to get Mm -hmm. it because it's not Mm -hmm. long enough. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they raise the three month treasury note interest rate in order to get people to lend them the money for three months. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. See what I'm saying? In other words, the market keeps saying, no, I'm not going to do it at 2.4. So it shows short-term uncertainty. Short-term uncertainty or the desire for a long-term position based on an expectation that interest rates are going to drop. Now, when would interest rates drop? Why would the stock, why would the Federal Reserve drop interest rates? Why would interest rates go down? And the answer is traditionally mm-hmm. in a recession. Mm-hmm. In order to stimulate the economy out of the recession, the Federal Reserve will yeah. drop the interest rates, making it more possible for more people Interesting. to borrow. So this yield curve inversion long. is what it's called, right? Um, that's mm-hmm. why it tends to indicate a potential recession, but not always. Right, but it's been very, very accurate, I have to say. Astonishingly accurate. It has accurately predicted seven of the last Mm. seven recessions. Mm. So that's quite good. Um, Now, there's various people looking at it and saying, well, it only does that if you have 10 days in a row of the yield curve being inverted. And we haven't had that. We've had it invert, then uninvert. But let me just tell you, these these two things that they measure it with, which is the three-month treasury and the 10-year treasury are so close together right now that the 10-year is up above the the three-month by a little tiny bit. The 10-year is at 2.48 today, and the three-month is at 2.43. So we're talking about a hundredth of a percent here, uh, or just a a few hundredths of a percent, which could change any day. It was inverted just uh, a few days ago, and then it uninverted Mm. today. So nobody knows for sure, of course, whether this is going to stay inverted or if it does, if it's going to predict a recession eight out of eight times. We, do, we just don't know that. Um, and there's a lot of flaws in this right now. And the fundamental one being that the Federal Reserve has essentially kind of taken over the economy by um, setting interest rates really yeah. low. So we don't really have a market I mean, economy the, on interest rates. So maybe this thing doesn't apply. How much lower can they really go in in a way to make a difference. Well, there you've just, that was really good, actually, Danielle, that you brought that up because the the reason the Federal Reserve was trying to raise interest rates wasn't to throw us into a recession. It was to yeah. try to get some breathing room so that the next time they needed to, you know, heat the economy back up, they had the, they had the firepower to do it by dropping interest rates right. by three points. Right, they could take it from five to two, from six to three, something like that, which is historically what they've done. 
uh, talking about the ten-year treasury, and and now they're at two point and have been for a very they don't long have time. Three too. percentage points. Oh yeah, and the argument out there with the economists almost across the board is that they don't have the ability to to affect the economy anymore. They can't kick us out of a recession at this point because they don't have enough of a drop of interest rates to cause people to go out yeah, and start borrowing money. Yeah, they don't have the leverage money. right now. They don't have the leverage to do it. That's so really this interesting is, um, to learn about the yield curve. I mean, I, I've been reading about it a bit, and I there was, just for everybody who subscribes to the Wall Street Journal, there was an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal like like a week ago or so about this inverted yield curve that I read. And, you know, for non-mathy people, this stuff is very confusing. Uh, but to understand the connection is not so confusing. So... Uh, I'm glad we discussed it because just to have a sense of like what everybody's talking about and that this thing is happening, it's important to know about. So let me let me finish by just saying that we don't try to predict the stock market's direction, um, but we try to understand what's going on in there out in the market as we try to find wonderful businesses that are on sale. And in this particular market, it's very difficult to find wonderful businesses that are on sale, um, which means that we may want to be conservative in our appraisals of businesses, what our values are, you know, what you know, how we're how we're approaching these companies, because this market has a lot of indications that it could be getting ready to hand us a bunch of stuff to us on sale. So we want to be able to have the firepower. We, when, when you see an economic storm starting to brew like this, you kind of want to get out a wheelbarrow, right? You, you don't want to be standing there when it starts to rain gold and have a thimble. You, you want a wheelbarrow. You want a truck. You, you want a wash tub. You want something big. And, and something big means as much cash as you can get your hands on. So we're at that point where for a lot of investors who are listening to the podcast, they're sitting with everything in their retirement in stocks and bonds. And there's an opportunity coming. We, we have a pretty good indicator that an opportunity is coming here in the next future. I don't know how long, maybe a year, maybe less, maybe two years, somewhere in there. We're going to see an opportunity to buy great companies super cheap. And the last time we had this in any major way was 2009. And it was nirvana. I mean, it was straight up from there. And so you can make up for a lot of time of sitting in cash by having mm -hmm. cash available right now, um, even if you don't deploy yeah, really it for a point. year or two. Um, if you have it available when the market drops, and what you've done in the interim is what you're doing, Danielle, which is it's what I'm doing, stacking up wonderful businesses I want to mm -hmm. buy on my wish list. And that's what I'd, I, I would, we don't recommend things here. We don't give you advice, but in my opinion, and, and that's what I'm doing, uh, that's, that's. Yeah. The and there's right a lot of people here. who disagree and think you got to be in the market because you don't know how long this is going to run the market going up. So yeah, it's total opinion. Yep. We don't know what's going to happen, but. Nope. What we do know is we don't have to know yeah, what's going to happen yeah. because our portfolios are adjusted automatically by value related to price. And right now, you know, companies are valued less than their price in the market, most of them. And we will, I think, see a time, not too distant future, when we will see them 
price substantially less than their value. And that's when we want to buy them. That's how you get velocity of money. And so if there's a value to the inverted yield curve, it's just another warning flag. Sending yeah, off signals exactly. like the Schiller PE does and like the Wilshire That's where Wilshire I derive GDP comfort does. from it. Not necessarily in, in what it says either way, but just to know that it exists is really helpful. Right. So... Right. We've got some news, right, Dad, go. about See, our so giveaway, our Finding Buffett giveaway, which ah. has been going on for the last week. The last day is tomorrow, Wednesday, April 3rd at midnight. I don't know which time zone that is. So midnight, wherever you live, Wednesday, tomorrow. <laughs> you got to get the misprinted book. You got to take a picture of it and send in a picture of your receipt and the book to investedpodcast.com slash Finding Buffett. I want to make two announcements regarding the Finding Buffett. Are you ready, Dad? Okay. Number one, yes. we've picked a date and time for our Ask Us Anything webinar, right? He's nodding. <laughs> I'm trying to we involve have, you in have, my announcement. It's, it's, an, it's an auspicious date. The 13th yes, a of Saturday. April. And it's a Saturday. So it yep, must exactly. be So it's there. Saturday afternoon, uh, April 13th from 3 to 4.30 p.m. Eastern time zone. 3 to 4 p.m. 3 to 4.30 Eastern time, April 13th. Um, We'll be online, and if you've um, entered the giveaway, we will be sending out an email with all the details on how to send in your questions. I know a bunch of you already have, and also how to log on to the Ask Us Anything webinar. And and how can you enter this uh, Q and A process? process? Well, as soon as you enter the giveaway, you are sent a link with all of your prizes, and. And but then and how do you enter the giveaway? I already said you go to investedpodcast.com slash finding Buffett after you. I'm trying to cue you. Buy, you. I'm trying you buy to a cue book. You. I already said that too. You tell the people. You, uh, you have to yes. cue me. Yes. Dad, if I wanted to <laughs> enter the Finding Buffett giveaway, how would I do it? <laughs> do you know? <laughs> you go find. The B-U-F-F-E-T on the cover mm -hmm. or spine of our book in a bookstore or Amazon. Amazon might be yeah, cleaned out by now, but you can try to get so one there. You guys have been buying so many books. It's so awesome. Um, they've been buying yeah. hundreds and hundreds of these things. But they are out on bookstores all over the country. You just got to go find it. Um, ask the bookstore if they've got it in the back. Right? They always have a few copies back there. And get it, take a picture, send it in with your receipt, and you are part well of done. this amazing giveaway. So send it in to Finding Buffett, sorry, investedpodcast.com slash Finding Buffett. And as I was saying, you'll get an email with your prizes. And then you will also, I believe on that email, there's a link to where you can go to an Excel spreadsheet and you can just write in your questions right there. But there will also be more emails with those details coming to you if you have already gotten into the giveaway. And then the other thing I wanted to say is we're so excited because I mentioned last time that we were working on a donation of these misprinted books. And I can now confirm that we are going to donate them. And it's just I feel really good about doing something with these books that can help other people. So we're so excited to be donating these misprinted books to one of Mr. Buffett's favorite charities, which is called Girls Inc. And Girls Inc. is a national charity in the U.S., 
um, but with local chapters in various cities around the country. And it's the charity to which Mr. Buffett donated his winnings when he made his $1 million bet that funds of funds couldn't beat the index in the market, which he won. It was a 10-year bet. We talked about it on a podcast extensively. And, uh, and he won, ended up being something like $2.2 million or something because of reasons that I don't even know. And he donated that money entirely to Girls Inc. So we took our cue from him and, of course, wanted to support him um, through a charity that he obviously cares about. And I know his wife, uh, Susie Buffett, particularly supported it. So we're going to be donating these books specifically to Girls Inc. in Omaha and also in New York City and then maybe other cities around the country as well. We're still working on the details. Girls Inc. is passionate about promoting financial literacy for girls, and they're actually partnered with J.P. Morgan to do so and to provide more education around financial literacy. And obviously, we are incredibly passionate about that. So this is a wonderful use of these books uh, to support girls learning about finance and the markets, and we're just thrilled to be able to do this. It was really exciting actually for us because they were wide open to it and real excited. And we're thrilled that kids are going to have a shot at learning about this everywhere out there. And it's been a wonderful experience for me, to be honest, to learn about what Girls Inc. does. And I'm really excited to work more with them and support women and girls coming up um, and particularly around financial literacy. So, so come on, come on, girls and come. women, become excellent investors, start your funds, Break through the, there I guess the the old boys club down in Wall Street. You want to see fifty percent of the fund managers are female. Right now it's point zero zero five percent are female. You made that up. I made that up, but it's not very many. <laughs> it's not very <laughs> so, many. So come on, you can do this. There's in fact, you not only can do this, you should be better than the guys. You're not a you're not as prone to doing testosterone related stupidity things. So let's, let's, let's crank on it and see if we can get more and more women out there really being successful with money. Love it. <laughs> I'm not sure you like that last bit, but that's all right. I like the message. The let's message get more women managing right, money. We're going we're um, to go. Cool. All right. Thank you so much for joining Finding Buffett, everybody. And I think I said about a million times the website, investedpodcast.com slash Buffett. It ends tomorrow night, Wednesday. And thank you to everybody who's bought books. And there are a lot of you. We really appreciate it. Don't forget, you guys, next week is going to be our interview with Jacob Taylor, who's the author of Rebel Allocator, which is an excellent book, um, very deep into the details of how to understand companies, but written in the form of a fiction book. We've been telling you about it for the last few weeks. If you haven't gotten it yet, get it and read it before next week's podcast, because you're going to understand our conversation much better if you've read the book. So enjoy, and we will be back in two weeks after that one plays with more. All right. Thanks, everybody. Time to go play. Bye. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, including show notes and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice 
because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.